when I first moved here to Palm Beach County in 2008, um, I was a new pastor, and I was pastor of the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach downtown. And our church, maybe we have some things in common between our churches. Our church had been in the newspaper. Our church had been in the news. Our church had had some battles and some struggles. And Raymond knew that this was my first time I'd ever been a senior pastor before. And so I came to town, and I didn't know anybody. I'm not from here. I don't have any relatives here. I don't have anything going on. And the first person to reach out to me to make friends with me, to care about me, was Ray Underwood. And Ray calls me and says, my name's Ray Underwood. I'm the pastor at Palm Beach Community Church. I said, okay, that's great. He said, I planned this church like 20 years ago. I said, okay, that's, that's pretty impressive. He said, would you like to have lunch with me? I said, you bet, because so far everybody at my church is mad at me. So it would be nice to be able to go to lunch with somebody that would be nice to me, you know. So I, I go and have lunch with Ray, and Ray was so, so kind. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were in a difficult time or a hard time. Maybe you needed some hope. Maybe you needed some connection. Somebody to just care about you and let you vent a little bit. And that's exactly what Ray did for me. And really since then, we've had lunch at least once a month for the last almost seven years. And Ray's really become a, a personal friend and a mentor to me in a lot of ways in ministry, but also as a husband and also as a dad. And so a lot of times when I have... Uh, difficulties and challenges uh, family-wise. Ray's one of the guys that I turn to, and Ray's given me a lot of great advice and a lot of encouragement. And so I'm so grateful for my friendship with Ray Underwood. I know that you're grateful that God has brought a man like this, Ray Underwood, to be your pastor at Palm Beach Community Church. That's exactly right. I feel that way too. Tell you what, let's go ahead and have our Bible study. So we're going to be studying the book of Ruth today. We're going to read the whole entire, I'm going to read it, but we're going to study the entire book of Ruth, all four chapters. So if you got your worship guide out that's got your listening guide, you're filling the blanks, go ahead and get that out. If you brought a copy of the Bible like I did, go ahead and get that out and turn to Ruth chapter 1 if you have it on your iPad or if you have it on your tablet, on your phone. Of course, we'll, as always, we'll, we'll put it on the screens. Well, let's do a Bible study this morning on the book of Ruth. And while you're finding the book of Ruth and locating all of that, um, I do want to bring you greetings from my family, and you can see in the in the bulletin in the in the program you got today that I, I have a beautiful wife. Her name is Kristen. We've been married for 20 years this month, so 20 years. That's I'm, we're excited about that. And we have eight children. We have six sons and two daughters. And our oldest son is 18, and our youngest is five. And so people always ask me why I tell them that. They always start asking me personal questions, even though they barely know me. You know, so I'm going to go ahead and answer some of your questions. They always ask me, you know. Uh, how many of those kids are adopted? And the answer is none of them. They're all homemade, all right? And then some people say, well, how many of them are twins? None of them. They came, they came one at a time. And the people ask me, you know, well, are you going to have any more? Uh, boy, we hope not, but we've said that before, you know. So, and then people always ask, sometimes people actually ask me this, and they don't even know me. They'll say, hey, are you one of those preachers who thinks birth control is a sin? And I always say, no, we don't think it's a sin. We just haven't figured out how to use it effectively. So we, we really, really love our family. And, of course, as you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas time are great family times, aren't they? They're, they're great times to get together. They're great times to connect. And we love Christmas. My kids love it. My wife loves it. And Advent, I love that we're celebrating Advent. We're doing the same thing at Family Church at all of our campuses. Okay, so our campus out, it meets out at the King's Academy where my kids are on the launch team and they're setting up and tearing down. They're celebrating Advent. They, they lit the Hope Candle this morning as well. And our campus downtown uh, used to be called First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach, now Family Church downtown. They lit the Hope Candle this morning. And our churches that worship in Spanish, the one downtown, the one out in Green Acres, the Family Church, they, they're lighting the Hope Candle this morning. And the church that meets out on Lantana Road, Family Church Sherbrooke, between 
441 and the turnpike, they, they're lighting the Hope Candle this morning. And so I'm honored to get to be with you because churches all over the world are lighting the Hope Candle today. Catholic churches are doing it, and Episcopalian churches are doing it, and Lutheran churches are doing it, and non-denominational churches are doing it. So, so we're doing this together, celebrating hope. Most of us that grew up with a religious background, um, we grew up lighting candles like this and celebrating Christmas in different ways. And what we know around Christmas time is that a lot of people really feel like they really don't have a lot of hope. And there's some pretty good reasons why they feel that way. People feel like they don't have hope because maybe they've uh, lost somebody. Maybe you've lost somebody. Or maybe they've lost their job and they're having to do some things financially that they, they never thought that they would have to do. Maybe uh, our kids aren't working out the way that we thought they would. They're making some decisions that we hope they wouldn't make or things are happening to them that we hope would never happen. But here we are, and it causes us to question whether or not there really is hope. Maybe we're having to be more involved in the lives of our adult children or our grandchildren than we thought we would be at this point in our lives. Or maybe we feel like we don't have anybody that cares about us. and We feel lonelier than we thought we would be at this point in our lives. Or maybe we feel like life has passed us by and it's too late for us. And maybe we feel it's kind of hard if you feel like the best days of your life are now behind you. How do you have hope moving forward? Well, I run to a lot of people that feel like that. And at different points in my own life at this point, even though I'm, I'm 43 years old, I, I've had opportunities to feel that way myself. And I have to battle a little bit of hopelessness sometimes myself. But uh, when I read the Scriptures, I read stories about people just like me. And I find stories about people just like you. And in all of the lives of these people and all these stories, God always comes through and God always brings hope. And what I think when I read the Bible is that if God can bring hope to these people whose lives were all messed up and they made mistakes and everything, just kind of like my life, maybe kind of like your life, and God brings hope to them and God has hope to them, then it gives me hope because maybe God's going to be hope to me. And maybe even when I'm struggling or I'm battling or I'm just barely digging in and hanging on to my Christianity, maybe if, if God can bring hope to people that are in the Bible, uh, maybe God can bring hope to me. And I, I believe that he can. I believe that God can bring hope to you as well. So let's go ahead and read the Scriptures. Let's dive right in to the text, Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. Here's what the Word of God says in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in, a in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Hey, let's just pause right there and let's talk a little bit about this story, okay? When you read this story, a couple of things jump out to you. First of all, it's Christmas, right? We're celebrating Advent. There's a, there's a, there's a city, there's a town that's mentioned in these verses that's kind of Christmassy, right? What is the Christmassy town that was mentioned right there in the verses? What is it? Bethlehem, did you catch that? So this story takes place in Bethlehem actually hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, hundreds of years before Mary and Joseph and the angel and the shepherds and everything happened, hundreds of years before God was up to something in this very, very special town 
of Bethlehem. That's where, that's where um, this lady is from. That's, that's where Naomi is from. That's where her husband is from. Now, now, the Israelites weren't supposed to leave their own land. God had given them land. God gave them a special place to live. It was the promised land. And even though they had a little bit of a hard time, they had kind of a famine, and Naomi and her family chose to pull up stakes out of the land that God had given them and to go to the land of Moab. They weren't supposed to do that. They were not supposed to leave the promised land that God had given them, but they gave up on God, and they kind of got off of the path that they were supposed to walk, and they end up in Moab. And when they get there, it's just a disaster. I mean, it's a disaster. Yeah, they had a little bit of a job. Yeah, they had some food to eat. But they, get, they, they, they leave the path that God told them to walk. And when they get to Moab, everything falls apart. So first of all, Naomi's husband dies. And so then her sons are like, well, we've got to get married. It's that time of life. So they get some Moabite wives. They really weren't supposed to do. They were supposed to marry Jewish women. They were good Jewish kids. They didn't. They married these Moabites, Orpah and Ruth. They weren't supposed to do. So they're living in a place they're not supposed to live. They're, 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 they're marrying people that they're not supposed to marry. And then those two kids died. So these two boys died. So now Naomi is not only a widow, she's a childless widow. And now she's stuck with these two daughters-in-law. Now, some of you really, really like your daughters-in-law, right? And some of you can take it or leave it. I know how it goes. And some of you really, really like your mother-in-law. And some of you can take it or leave it. Some of you are sitting here with your mother-in-law right now, and you're having to act like you like it, but you really don't. But that can happen. So it's in the Bible. So this is what happens. So back in those days, if you didn't have a man in the family, uh, women didn't have an opportunity to work. Women didn't have an opportunity to job women, to get a job. Women didn't have an opportunity to vote. You needed a man in the family to stand up for you and to provide for you. So when Naomi's husband died, it was very important that her daughter, that her, that her, that her boys get married so they could have grandkids. But then when her son's died, there's nobody to take care of her. And so Naomi makes a decision. She says, I've got to go home. I've got to go back where I belong in the first place. I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm going to go back to my hometown of, what was her hometown? Christmassy, right? Bethlehem. When I get back to Bethlehem, then I can plug in with some relatives, and at least I'll have some people to take care of me. So she goes to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, here's the deal, girls. You girls are young. You've still got your looks. you still got your figure. You have your families here. You have an opportunity to have a good Moabite life. And I know that when you married my boys, we made you convert to Judaism. We made you convert to our God. We made you convert to our culture. We made you take our people as your people, and we made you take our God as your God, but I'm releasing you from all of that because my boys are dead. There's no reason for you to tag around with an old woman who's, who's, who's a widow. And so you stay here. You get some new husbands. I'm going home to Bethlehem. And, of course, Orpah says, hey, thanks because I wasn't that fond of you anyway, and I just converted to Judaism to get married to your boys. Now that he's dead, there's no reason for me to stay Jewish and act like I believe all this stuff. So I'm checking out. Thank you very much. And she goes on. But this is what Ruth says. Ruth says this in, in uh, if you look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. Ruth says, or excuse me, Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law, has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be what? Your people will be my people, and your God will be what? My God. Where you die, I will die, and there... I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. See, this is really amazing because what Ruth is basically saying is, Naomi, 
when I converted to be a follower of your God, when I converted and became a part of your family, a part of your people, I wasn't kidding. I wasn't faking it. I really believed this stuff. She had become a God follower. She had become a person who was, who was a person of faith in the one true living God. She had become a follower and a servant of Yahweh. And she says, I'm not giving that up now just because my husband died. I have a personal relationship with God that's mine and mine alone. And so I'm not walking away from this just because my husband died. And I'm not walking away from you just because he died. We're stuck together. And Orpah can go and do whatever she wants. You and I are together. I'm going where you go. And if you go back to Israel, it's fine because I've already taken your people as my people. So if I have to get buried there, bury me there. Okay, I'm not worried about my hometown. I'm with you. I'm not worried about my old gods. I'm taking your God. This is, this is real for me. And so she, she goes back. Now they get back to Bethlehem and they have no money and they have nobody really to take care of them and they're living off the, the generosity of relatives. Now back then it was a custom that if... Uh, Woman, if a husband dies and a woman is widowed and she hasn't had any kids, the nearest relative is supposed to take her as his wife and supposed to give her children, and he's supposed to take care of her and those kids. That was the rule. So even if you had a wife, if your brother died, you had to take your sister-in-law, now she has to be your wife and all of her kids need to be your kids. Some of you are thinking, that is a horrible, horrible system. And I agree, that system makes no sense to us culturally. We don't have that system anymore. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, if any of you think that you would like to also, in addition to your wife, have her sister or whatever as your wife, that you can't do that. That's against the rules now. But back then, that was the cultural custom. It was the law. It was expected. So Naomi tells Ruth, she says, listen, it's interesting because now that we're back in Bethlehem, I have this cousin. I have this cousin. Yes, he's older, but he's one of those guys who's gotten better looking as he got older. He's still in good shape. He still has his hair. You know, I mean, this guy, he's a, he's a really sharp guy. And if I were you, out of all the relatives that are the possibilities, this guy's name's Boaz. He's the one I'd be, I'd be trying to get his attention if I were you. And uh, Ruth says, you know, actually, uh, I still got my looks. I still got my figure. I think I know how to get a guy's attention. And if you tell me Boaz is the man, I will make sure that Boaz notices Ruth, and it's all in the Bible. This is the King Jimmy version, I know, but I'm telling you, it's, it's in there. Okay, so Ruth actually goes, and Boaz owns some fields. He's a farmer, so Ruth, has go, Ruth goes and, and gleans in Boaz's field. You know what gleaning is. She goes around and picks up the scraps after the harvesters pick up all, all the crops. And so she starts picking up the scraps, and I don't know what she wore. I don't know if she had on her best, you know, mini robe. I don't know if she... If she, you know, put her, put her earrings in, her nose rings in, I don't know if she got, I, I don't know what, she, I don't know if she bent over a special way to pick up. I, I'm serious. I don't know what she's doing because she says in the Bible she's going to go get Boaz's attention, and she does. And while she's out there picking up the scraps with all the other women who are picking up scraps, Boaz says, uh, who's the new girl? I, I, I like her. Who is that? And uh, he says, I, I want to get to know her. And he finds out it's, her, name is, her name is Ruth. And so he calls her over, and uh, this is what happened. They have a conversation. Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Boaz says to Ruth, listen, my daughter. He's a lot older than her, okay? Not too old, but older. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged my young men not to touch you? You see what he's done? Hey, that one right there, boys, you can have these other girls. That one, leave her alone. I got my eye on that one. Okay? Uh, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink 
what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice to me of me, though I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, although I am not one of your servants. See, she's already started, right? All right, I'm not one of your servants. Well, time goes on, and Boaz and Ruth actually become friends over this harvest season, and they have more conversations, and he's increasingly impressed with Ruth, but then the harvest season ends, and she realizes, I'm not going to be able to go and glean in his fields anymore, and she's not really sure what to do next. And Naomi and Ruth actually have a conversation where Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, hey, Ruth, uh, I appreciate that you are able to get Boaz's attention, and I like all these conversations. He's letting you drink out of the company water jar, and he's taking care of you and everything, but uh, harvest time's over, and we're not going to have any food to eat. Um, you're going to have to move this thing along, okay? You've got you to you move this thing faster. Okay, ladies, don't raise your hands. Have any of you ever had any pressure? You've felt relational pressure. Have you ever, ever applied relational pressure to your kids? Come on, let's move this thing along. That's what Naomi's doing to Ruth. And so Ruth says, okay, they come up with a plan. Ruth actually goes to Boaz at night in his bedroom. It's in the Bible. You can look it up yourself. Now, this is not what I want you to use as a dating manual for your daughter. But she goes and sneaks into Boaz's bedroom while he's asleep. She goes in there, and I don't understand everything about this because our culture isn't like that. If this happened today, if a girl shows up in your bedroom in the middle of the night and crawls into bed with you, something that God doesn't want to happen is probably about to happen, right? But that's not true in this case. That's not what happened. Back then it was chaste. And so she goes in to where Boaz is sleeping, and she wakes him up. And this is what happened, Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. He said, who are you? She said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wing. Remember how, how, she, how, how uh, Boaz told her that the, the Lord, the God of Israel, has spread his wings over you because you sought refuge under his wings just a minute ago? Okay, here's what, he's, here's what she says. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. By redeemer, he meant I'm the one who needs to take you and take care of you and make you my wife. Okay, I'm the redeemer. I'm going to redeem you. Even though you're a widow, I'm going to redeem you. That's true. You can come and take refuge under my wings and I'm equipped to do it and I want to do it but here's what happens he says there is a redeemer nearer than I in other words I'm your cousin but there's actually a redeemer that's a closer cousin than I am and what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go strike a deal with this old boy and I'm going to try to get him to step back so I can step up and that's exactly what happens Uh, Boaz has to make a deal with the other guy so that he can marry Ruth But he's a deal maker. He's a mover and a shaker. He's a successful businessman. He makes the deal. And this is what happens next. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her 
And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who's not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, My son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who is the father of who? Father of somebody pretty famous, King David. You see what happened in this story. Naomi had a lot of reasons to give up hope, didn't she? I mean, Naomi, she was in the wrong spot. She got off the path. Her life fell apart. Her marriage fell apart. Her husband died. Her, her sons died. Her daughter-in-law left her. She had to come crawling back to town in Bethlehem with nothing, penniless, husbandless, childless, dragging this Moabite widow with her, daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law has to go beg for food, pick up scraps. That was that day's welfare system. And then Ruth is forced to go and basically ask this older guy to, to marry her, but he does. And you can look at this story in a lot of different ways, but you can see why they would give up hope. But actually, this is a story of Advent. It happened in Bethlehem. And this is why God is the hope that we've all been waiting for. Hey, if you got your listening guide, you got your fill in the blanks, let's fill in some blanks. I'll, I want you to note, note some things from the story, directly from the story, about how God is hope, not just for the people in the story, but God is hope for us, okay? And I believe everybody will fit in some of these categories. Number one, God is hope for widows and singles. God is hope for widows and singles. Sometimes people who are widows feel like they're forgotten. They feel like there's no way forward. People who are single feel like they're forgotten, feel like they're left out because everybody talks about who's going to get married and when are you going to get married and why aren't you married and what's the matter with you and you better get busy and all this stuff. That's, that's not God's plan. You know the Bible actually honors singles and the Bible tells us to honor widows. And so singleness and even widowhood, they're, they're honored in the Bible. And the church is commanded to honor singles and to honor people who are widows and widowers. This is what we should be doing as the people of God. And so God is actually hope not just for, oh, people who have, you know, Hallmark postcard families with this is his first wife, and this is her first husband, this is their kids, and everything worked out perfect. That's not the family that God's here for. He, he brings hope to them, but he brings hope to all of us because most of us don't have a family like that. Most of us are, are biting and scrapping and working and trying to work it out and figuring it out. That, that's, that's who God brings hope to. He brings hope to widows and to singles. Uh, number two, God is hope for the sojourner. God is hope for the sojourner. Okay, first of all, Naomi and her family are sojourners in, in Moab, but then Naomi and Ruth have to come back, and, and Ruth is a sojourner in Israel. Now, I don't want to get into a big political discussion because we could get in a big fight, and everybody knows two things you shouldn't discuss is religion and politics. Unfortunately, we're in a church, so we're going to discuss religion, and uh, sometimes politics and religions intersect, intersect. Now, I'm not really talking, I'm not making a statement today about what our immigration policy ought to be or should not be in this country, but I will just say this. We have a lot of sojourners in this community, a lot of sojourners. Now, whether you think they should have come here, they shouldn't come here, they should stay here, they should leave, doesn't matter. Hundreds of thousands of sojourners live with us in our community. We are the people of God, and we need to know that God cares about every single one of them, regardless of what the public policy is or turns out to be. We need to care about them the way that God does. So whatever that means, sojourners 
Sojourners matter to God. Number, number three, God is hope for the poor. God is hope for the poor. Now, some of you are saying, uh, excuse me, uh, Pastor Scroggins, uh, you come from the family church downtown, and I'm sure that downtown you have a lot of poor people because it's downtown. You got a lot of inner city people. This is Palm Beach Community Church. We meet in the Borland Center. We don't have, listen, a lot of us are poorer than we thought we would be at this point. A lot of us are having to do things we never thought we'd have to do financially. It's exactly what happened to Naomi. It's exactly what happened to Ruth. And you know what? God's hope for them. And God had a plan for them. And God had a way for them to, to work it out. And all the way through the Bible, God is hope for the poor. Number, number four, God is hope for the hurting. God is hope for the hurting. Naomi and Ruth were sad. They'd experienced death. They'd experienced poverty. They'd experienced loneliness. They'd experienced transition. And they were hurting. But God had hope for them. No, number five, God is hope for successful people. God is hope for successful people. You know, Boaz was a very successful person. He, he owned a business. He owned land. He had a lot of people who worked for him, but he was hurting in his own way. I bet there's some people in this room who have looked successful on the outside, but on the inside, you were really hurting. Maybe that's you right now. Because we come to church and we've got everything all polished up for church, right? We come up, we put on our clothes, we show up at church, we smile, everything. Hey, how you doing? Praise the Lord, I'm doing great. You know, you just you just do awesome. You pull up, you got to keep it. But inside, man, the, the pressure that you're feeling at work and what's really going on in our marriages and what's happening with our kids and the questions, the, the spiritual questions that we have and the turmoil that we're experiencing, the addiction that we're battling and the sin that we're fighting and the temptation that's attacking us and the despair that we feel and the depression that keeps coming back and we can't keep it away. All of this stuff, all of this stuff, even though we might look successful on the outside, it hurts on the inside. And we can't lose hope. Sometimes the pressure of keeping up appearances causes us to lose hope. The pressure of the appearances themselves squash us and suffocate us. Boaz was like that. He was hurting on the inside. But God has hope for him. God has hope for marriages. God has hope for marriages. You know, you know what Boaz and Ruth did? Boaz and Ruth actually did the right thing. They did the right thing. They waited until they got married to get together sexually because they knew they were right for each other. They knew that they loved each other. They knew that they respected each other. So they so they got married, and God blessed their marriage. And I love what just happened up here at Palm Beach Community Church. I love the fact that we had families up here dedicating children. That's exciting. That's exciting. And God wants to bless these families, and God cares about these families. And if you are married or you're thinking of getting married, I want you to know that God cares about your marriage. God cares about your marriage more than you do. And you shouldn't give up on it. You should hang in there because God cares about these things. This is God's hope for, for marriages. God had hope for the marriage of Ruth and for Boaz. Number seven, God has hope for children. God has hope for children. The Bible says that over and over that children are a blessing from the Lord. I love you got Lucy Brotman and Jackson Brown being dedicated this morning, even though we did two different dedication services back to back, which is really awesome, you know. But we brought them up here, and Ray went and sat down, and Ray came back up here. I think that was really good. And, uh, and the fact that these families are bringing these children up here, and they're saying, we're taking these children, and we don't have it all together, and we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know the future, but we're taking these precious children. And, and this church family is saying, we love, we love children, and we love families bringing their children here and, 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 and bringing these children up here because this is what happened. I mean, look, you know what the Bible says, that God knits children together in the womb of their moms 
But God knits those children together. Isn't that poetic? Isn't that beautiful? God puts them together. Now, now don't you think if God has put this little baby together in, in her mother's womb, do you think that after the baby's born, then God just says, oh, the heck with it, do whatever you want? Of course not. If God goes through the trouble and the, and, and the effort and, and the detail work to take Lucy or Jackson, put them together, their mother's womb, and put them together, don't you think he cares what happens to them next and what they believe and that they have a church family around them that cares about them? I mean, this is the plan of God. God has hope for these children. So whatever's happening politically, whatever's happening in our country, whatever's happening economically, God has hope for children. Number eight, God has hope for senior adults and grandparents. God's hope for senior adults and grandparents. You, you know, the, what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 17 is that, uh, that grandchildren are a crown to their grandparents. Grandchildren are a crown to grandparents. Now, let me ask you a question. I, I just want to I don't, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I just want to try something here. How many of you actually have grandchildren? If you have grandchildren, would you raise your hands really high? Raise them really high. Okay. Now, put it down. I want to ask you another question. How many of you ever in your life, and don't lie, because if you lie, we're in church and your pants could catch on fire. Okay. How many of you, how many of you at one time or another met somebody, and in the first conversation you ever had with somebody, you did show them pictures of your grandchildren. How many of you would admit to that? Go ahead and raise your hands. You show them. All right. How many of you, if I got to know you real quick because of what's in your purse, what's in your wallet, what's on your phone, you could show me pictures of your grandchildren right now if you wanted to. How many of you have the ability to do that? Of course. You know why? Because grandchildren are a crown to their grandparents. That, that's what they are, and it's, it's a blessing. And so even if you're a senior adult, you look, uh, senior adults, grandparents, God's hope for you. And I, I know my dad, my dad's 70 years old, and I was with my dad at Thanksgiving, and my dad said, because uh, he's had to have his knee replaced, and he had his other knee replaced, and he had his shoulder replaced, and he had to get different glasses. And my dad says, Jimmy, getting old is not for wimps. That's what he said. But I love the fact that there's hope. But God has hope for senior adults like Naomi. God has hope even for older guys like Boaz who think it's over. It's not over. Number nine, God has hope for nations. God has hope for nations. At the end of, at the, end of the book of Ruth that we read there in chapter 4, do you remember where it said, uh, it, it closed the book up, and it said, that, um, it said that, that Ruth and Boaz had a baby, and his name was Obed, and then Obed grew up and had a son, and his name was Jesse, right? And then Jesse had a son, and his name was what? David. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess marries the confirmed bachelor, who everybody says is never going to get married, Boaz. And then they have a baby, Obed. And then Obed has a son, Jesse. And then Jesse has a son, David. And what God is doing is he's taking these children that everybody thinks is just a random child. Who cares? Just remember the young girl from Moab? She ended up, you know, Boaz was, couldn't find anybody, so he ended up marrying one of the girls, gleaning off of his fields, and she's a foreigner, felt sorry for her, and he, he married her, and then they had that baby. Remember when he was real old and they had that baby, and then he was at his graduation, like, you know, hey, happy graduation. You know, and remember when all that happened? Yeah, well, well uh, he had a baby, Jesse. This becomes one of the greatest royal families in world history. This is one of the greatest world families in world history. God has a plan for the nation, the nation of Israel. And which brings me to number 10. God has a plan for us because God is hope for sinners. 
God is hope for sinners. Sinners like Naomi. Sinners like Ruth. Sinners like Boaz. Sinners like Jimmy Scroggins. Sinners like you. God is hope for sinners. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what happens is if you go to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, which I know many of you have because you're churchy people, you studied the Bible, some of you, you go to Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus Christ himself. And in the family tree, when you read back, you find out that, that Ruth and Boaz are in the family tree of Jesus, as is their son Obed, as is their grandson Jesse, as is their great-grandson David, who's a man after God's own heart. And if you go back a little bit before that, and you read back a little bit, you find out Boaz had a pretty famous mom. Boaz's mom was a lady named Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. So Boaz, even though he made good as an adult, Boaz grew up with the stigma of his mother who was a, not only a foreigner and a sojourner, a prostitute. She'd slept with many, many lovers. She probably had diseases. She probably had, had abortions. She may have children by other men. And then she marries this Israelite named Salmon. And then they have this boy named Boaz. And Boaz actually becomes a very astute businessman. And then this son of a hooker ends up marrying this Moabite beggar, welfare lady, and they have a son. But God has a plan to redeem sinners, doesn't he? He has a plan not only to redeem us from our sins, but to redeem our legacy, to redeem our family, to redeem our future. That's what God's doing in the story of Ruth. So where's Advent in all this? Because Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of the confirmed bachelor who married the welfare widow, the confirmed bachelor who's the son of the Canaanite prostitute. This is where Jesus comes from, and this is who Jesus comes to. So when Jesus looks into sometimes the ugliness of my heart and the mess of my mistakes and my own sin, Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm too good for him. Jesus says, this is my people. And Jesus says, sinners are my people. And Jesus came to save sinners from their sins. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever repented of your sins and made a decision to believe the gospel of Jesus? I mean, come to the point where you just said, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm turning from my sins. I'm turning to Jesus. I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm not the man that God wants me to be yet, but I don't want to be the man that I used to be anymore. I, I want to I turn from the gospel. I want to embrace Jesus. If you want to do that, you can do that today. You can do that this morning right now. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've never done that before, I want to invite you to pray a prayer. You can do it by praying a simple prayer. The prayer says this, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and make me clean. Come into my life right now and give me hope. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I want to live the rest of my life for him. If that prayer expresses the desire of your heart, I want to invite you to make that your prayer from God, your prayer from your heart this morning straight to God. You know what the Bible says? If you'd pray that prayer, 
God will make you clean on the inside where it really counts. God will begin to awaken hope in your heart and let you walk the path of God just like Ruth learned to do when her husband died. Hey, listen, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to pray that prayer with me. I'm going to pray it out loud. You can make this your prayer to God from your own seat. So just out of respect for one another, in order to have a little contemplative moment, can we all just bow our heads and close our eyes? Would that be all right? Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to pray out loud. And if this prayer represents the desire of your heart this morning, I want to invite you to make this your prayer to God right now. So I'll pray out loud. You pray right there in your heart. You ready? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and make me clean. Come into my life right now and give me hope. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. And I want to live the rest of my life for him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.